This podcast is titled On the Cusp of Modernity. In it, I talk about architecture and education in a transformative period of history. From the time architecture was formally taught at Sir JJ School of Art, it has been a continuing story of growth. Some decades were more animated than others. The late 1940s was a particularly fascinating period with fervent hope and excitement. Independence appeared imminent and the commitment to build a new country was driving many. Architects saw both challenges and opportunities in the offing. Equally important, the profession was conscious of its own transformation. Education and practice was undergoing changes as it was building itself. I will talk about what learning architecture meant in those growing years. I also describe how the city, its architecture and some key buildings shaped architectural thinking, education and values. I primarily talk about architectural education as it was offered in the Sir JJ School of Art. In the 1940s there were only two schools of architecture. In the decades that followed, JJ served as a model of education in the country. Before the British came, buildings in India were designed and built by master builders also known as mestris or sthapatis. The colonial powers separated the roles of the one who drew up the plans and the one who built. Engineers in local garrisons with rudimentary knowledge of building, design and construction got the buildings of the government built. Some with a smattering familiarity with architecture did passable work. Formal education in architecture did not exist in India till the early 20th century. Some form of orientation to architectural design was given in civil engineering courses. Sir JJ School of Art which started in 1857 often on conducted classes in architectural drawing but these were sporadic. John Beg architect to the government of Bombay in 1900 started a certificate course in architectural draftsmanship with this one could get a junior position in the drawing offices of the pwd george witet who built the most important buildings of the time in mumbai took over the school in 1908 he started a four year course in architecture in 1913 robert cable was brought over from england to make a proper school of architecture like those in the west He was from the AA school of architecture and trained in the Beaux-Arts tradition. He started a 5-year full-time diploma course in 1916. The pedagogy was similar to that of the Beaux-Arts. In 1923, three students passed the exam and got the government diploma in architecture. They were S.H. Parelkar, S.J. Narvekar and M.G. Desai, the first professionally qualified architects in India. In 1920 the school got exempted from the intermediate exam of the Royal Institute of British Architects. This attracted students from neighboring countries in the commonwealth since no other school got this exemption. There was a break during Cable's tenure. He was assigned war duties. During his absence in 1917, H Foster King was appointed as professor in charge. He was a practicing architect, not an academic. He brought some fresh ideas by bringing in practicing architects as visiting lecturers. This practice continued even when I was a student. The interaction between academy and the outside world began. Cable's tenure ended in 1923 and Claude Batley succeeded him. 
His innings lasted 20 years and during his term he moved away from the Bozart system to a freer one. New subjects were added and history was seen more holistically as through Bannister Fletcher. Unlike his predecessors who came from academic or official backgrounds, Batley was a practicing architect. He came from the cosmopolitan elite of Bombay and was therefore not averse to some degree of modernity if it did not blindly copy western architecture. He believed that modern Indian architecture would have to evolve through traditional knowledge of materials and skills and one's sensibility should not be swayed by glossy images in magazines. Modernity was in its nascent stages. I joined the school in 1949. In the initial years, the emphasis was on acquiring drawing and rendering skills, though design was somewhat freer than before. Younger teachers encouraged new ideas in rendering. The older ones rooted as they were in the past believed that design for modern buildings needed to derive from traditional forms. They cited specialized history, a subject brought into the curriculum by Batley. The subject was to design a modern day project adapting a traditional style of architecture. We could take some liberties with the established orders and innovate within their basic principles. Batley intended to remind students that architecture in India should transit from its rich past to the modern by understanding traditional architecture from different parts of the country. He believed that modern architecture in India would have to grow through its understanding of climate materials and the skills required to handle them. He was against West- aping western architecture with no regard for the local context. He supported his theory with his book titled Design Development of Indian Architecture. The book was a compilation of measured drawings of lesser known monuments and residential buildings. Many of the monuments included in the book were overlooked by historians and archaeologists because they were not considered important. We referred to the book often because it contained examples of architecture from different parts of the country. We got a better sense of history from Batley than we did from Fletcher. The studio for specialized history at school was well intentioned. Batley probably made it an interesting introduction to modern architecture and students then perhaps did not question its validity. In the early 50s we were skeptical about mixing historical baggage with modernity and the effect it could have on our designs and architecture in general. We looked around the city to see if there were buildings that fulfilled the ideal that Batley expounded. We were told that the General Post Office, Prince of Wales Museum and Gateway of India were good examples of the application of historical styles to modern buildings. All these buildings were built in stone with a technology that was outdated. They were built even before we were born and it was difficult to relate to them. For us they were like any monument from the past. Gateway of India was an exception because the monument and its location are inseparable. The Gateway of India is appropriate for its site unlike the others which could be anywhere. As its name suggests, it is a transition from the vast space of the sea to land through a man-made object, a wonderful symbol of an entrance to a country. It is a symbol and a good one at that. G.B. Mathre, who conducted the studio in specialized history in our time, had a different point of view. He told us that history was a baggage of our own making, 
because we only read and talked about it instead of seeing drawing and experiencing buildings of the past he was concerned with the beauty of a building not its style or questions of relevance or otherwise he dismissed all our doubts by saying i quote roll up your sleeves and get down to work that is the only way to go forward we did our work without much conviction but with sufficient curiosity to find what practicing architects thought about using a historical style for the facade of a building that was modern in its plan and use while browsing through old newspapers i came across an article by kanhaiya lal vakil art critic of the bombay chronicle who called for a revival of indian architecture to begin a renaissance such articles led to the improvement trust conducting competitions inviting designs for facades of public buildings in indian style the idea of such a renaissance was short lived because traditional forms were not compatible with the complex requirements and technology of modern times most architects barring a few rejected the idea of grafting a facade from the past on a building of the present during discussions in the school canteen we got interested in finding out if there were any theories surrounding architecture in different periods of history we read about myths surrounding egyptian pyramids and temples european cathedrals and similarly wondered at the hindu temple in earlier times the temple was more than a place of worship it had a central position in the town and all life revolved around it we found this to be a constant feature throughout history in his book batley analyzed the hindu temple through a series of diagrams to explain the constructs of its various physical elements especially the shikhara but it did not go beyond the obvious the temple was the physical expression of a philosophy in which the everything in the universe is connected it was full of symbolism its plan being derived from a diagram of the cosmos with its planetary positions each of which was endowed with mystical significance its pyramidal tower the shikhara was a symbol of mount meru and the finial the apex of the temple structure was on the axis connecting earth to the cosmos what we learned in school were only the physical aspects of the temple its form construction materials and methods we did not learn about the significance of the parts that made the whole the iconography on the plinths of the temple often de- depicted events and achievements with little distinction between religious and secular aspects of life but we were taught to see the iconography as mere decorative friezes meant to act as relief to surfaces the underlying philosophy behind temple design and the role of the architect who was also sculptor builder and interpreter of the deeper meaning of symbols was of interest only to the scholars but we didn't learn this in school the school then had most of the prominent architects of the city giving lectures or conducting design studios some of the younger professors had studied abroad for the qualifying example exam of the riba they exposed us to some of the ideas of the modern movement and the experiment at synthesizing different arts at the bauhaus jahangir bilemoria was one such professor who showed us the context in which modern architecture emerged from its historic roots bilemoria was a devotee of sri aurobindo and a regular member of his ashram 
He showed us Antonin Raymond's work in Pondicherry, the gold-coned hostel. He showed us plans and photographs and analyzed the building. We were convinced that the building was a good response both to its austere program and climate. <clears throat> its orientation and provision of movable louvers modulated light and airflow. Antonin Raymond and his associate George Nakashima created beauty using few materials, relying more on proportion and refinement of detail. <clears throat> Bilimoria said that the building was built by devotees of the ashram. For devotees, work was sadhana, a form of spiritual practice. For a building to have spiritual quality, it needs to touch the core essence of a concept, like haiku poetry which conveys a lot with few words. <clears throat> His mention of quality prompted us to ask him about the Greek preoccupation with beauty and perfection in sculpture and architecture. We grew up studying Norman's Parallel of the Orders, a book on Greek classical orders. The book contained plates with drawings of the elements of the Greek temple. It set out the proportions and relationships between different parts of the building. The Greek, over the years, had perfected the design and proportions of the column and entablature and codified them into a set of dimension relationships. We asked Bilimoria if he, like us, also saw this striving for perfection as a journey to a mythical end and, and if temple architects in India were on similar missions. He said the ancient Greeks had a fixed notion of perfection, which was rep replicating their gods and the state of heaven. But traditional Indian thought concerned itself with completeness, the interrelatedness of everything in the universe and continuous evolution. The ideal, itself only a notion, could therefore change with evolution. The Hindu temple exemplified this belief, though positions assigned to the icons and planets within it remained constant. For most of the years that we spent in the School of Architecture, our exposure to modern architecture was mainly the Bauhaus and European modernists like Gropius, Luce and Mies. There were also architects whose work was included in FRS York's book, The Modern House. Their rational approach to architecture and advocacy of modern materials and technology appealed to many students. For others, it was Frank Lloyd Wright and his philosophy of organic architecture that influenced their way of seeing and designing. The dichotomy in architectural thought was animatedly debated among students. The rationalists argued that Frank Lloyd Wright's work was romantic and reminded one of the picturesque cottages with sloping roof and smoking chimney. It lacked intellectual vigor and could not stand critical analysis. Organic architecture was local, not modern or universal, and its adherents were romanticists. In contrast, the European box, a product of the machine age and built with products of industry, was universal. It could be anywhere because it was derived from an understanding of people's needs, which are the same everywhere. The international style looked at architecture as a bridge between the impersonal world of industry and the people who benefit from it. Students influenced by Frank Lloyd Wright said organic architecture was more about universal values and forms emerging from understanding them. It was about the nature of materials and structure and developing a sense for them. It had more to do with feeling than reason. 
The modern buildings in Europe, they argued, were impersonal, cold and soulless. They appealed only to the intellect, leaving little room for the indefinable quality that one can experience in art or music. These perceptions changed drastically for most architects when Le Corbusier started work at Chandigarh. His was the most lasting impression on all art- architects. They were radical for the times. They were unlike other modern buildings, most of which were dumb boxes. Corbusier freed interior space. He made meaningful connections between inside and outside and used natural light as effectively as the Greeks. He used concrete to create a variety of forms and with it, its surfaces left exposed created a new language. His design for the High Court at Chandigarh opened another door for us. The rigid orthogonal plan and strictly functional elevation and roofline associated with the international style were not sacred anymore. The school by the late 50s was on the cusp of modernity in its outlook and curriculum. In the city, by the mid-30s, use of RCC in the structural system gained more and more acceptance. Multi-storey apartments came up in Marine Drive and around the Oval. The internal plan requirements and structural and construction methods left exteriors bland and architects trained to see embellished facades took to Art Deco. These appeared modernistic but depended on surface ornamentation. There was no fundamental change in thinking. However, three modern buildings that came up more or less at the same time in the 50s set students on a series of visits and discussions, both amongst themselves and with architects in the profession. They were Jahangir Art Gallery, Tata Institute of Social Sciences and Stan Vak House. Jahangir Art Gallery, possibly the first permanent gallery in the city, is located on the corner of Kalagoda, an important public space. It is in the compound of the museum on its northwest edge. An unusual building in more ways than one. It raised more questions in our minds than any other building in the city. The gallery followed the curve of the street for a part of the building. The space behind the curve was organized to accommodate an entrance and an auditorium. The entrance had a canopy, the profile of which is corrugated. There was some mention about the structural advantage of such a form. For us, it was unusual and we liked it. The main gallery was rectangular and was naturally lighted and ventilated. On the east, light came through a series of glass doors opening to the museum's garden. Direct sunlight was cut off by a deep overhanging weather shade and subdued light washed the floor. On the west, there were windows at a high level which allowed the bright afternoon light to come in from a height. The quality of light in the afternoon was different from the one in the morning. An egg crate ceiling softened the afternoon light. The outside of the building had yellow basalt stone facing in panels. Stones were arranged to cast shadows, which everybody said was to reduce heat. Although the exterior was in stone, it was light in appearance, unlike earlier stone buildings. This was because the stone was used only in panels. Jahangir Art Gallery raised more questions and discussions among students and architects when it opened in 1952. The first was its location and its effect on the public space outside it. Architects and students held opposite views. 
Architects felt that the new art gallery marred the view of the museum and its dome. We and other students thought it was located at a vantage position, one that gave an edge to an important public space, but felt that the visual connection between the circle and the museum was lost because the building did not provide any transparency. Had its entrance and rear been in glass, one could have walked through the entrance hall of the gallery to the museum gardens and the connection would then have been both physical and visual. Older architects thought the building should have been designed in the style adopted by Vitet for the museum since it was in the same compound and close to it. We rejected this view because the museum preceded the art gallery by several years. It was built in a traditional style, one that suited a technology that was outdated. The new building was a refreshing change from the past and expressive of the present. We felt more assured when Bile Moria, our professor, told us, I quote, Our initial reaction and later response to anything are always conditioned by what we already know. When something new and unusual turns up, we turn away from it because we are unsure of ourselves. We would rather stay safe with the known. That is why those who think differently have to struggle for acceptance and recognition. But time has a way to deal with it. When the fraternity of architects, including senior members of the profession, met in the auditorium of the art gallery to hear N.V. Modak present his plan for Greater Bombay, they were all appreciative of the building, though they hadn't been earlier. A group of us at that presentation saw another demonstration of what Bilamoria had told us. Resistance without any logic to the plan and Modak's explanations. Some of the objections raised were so long-winded that Modak had to interrupt and ask the speaker if he was asking a question and replying it as well. But the presentation was interesting because till then we were not fully aware of what went into planning for a city. The second building that impressed us greatly was the Tata Institute of Social Sciences at Deonar. We went again and again to this beautiful campus set in the midst of trees and surrounded by hills. At the campus, buildings are designed to suit the slopes of the site and laid out informally. This was unlike the old universities and colleges where buildings are arranged around quadrangles or forecourts. Buildings in those universities are formally and symmetrically planned with rooms or halls placed on either side of a central corridor. Rooms are high, windows narrow and tall, and exteriors built in dressed stone masonry. The Durga Bajpai Design Campus for Tata Institute of Social Sciences is a contrast to, say, St. Xavier's College. The architectural language of the campus is like the vernacular architecture of the region, especially in the use of random rubble masonry walls and sloped roofs covered with roofing tiles. But the resemblance ends there because the space within the building and the creative use of local materials and concrete make the buildings modern in all respects. The academic building has a flat concrete slab below a sloped tile roof. Rooms are cool and well lit as they have pivoting glazed windows that control airflow and let in adequate light. All concrete surfaces were left exposed and unplastered. They were painted in bright colours while all woodwork was coated with solignum, a wood preservative that left a dark stain on wood. 
walking around the campus and seeing the way buildings were sensitively placed on the site, the free flow of spaces within buildings, the innovative use of common materials like stone and concrete, both of which were drab, dealt with in bright colours, an idea borrowed from painted brick and plaster superstructures of temples in South India. All these aspects made the campus very appealing to us as students. The third building, Stanwag House, was special for me because I worked on its details. It was the headquarters in India of Standard Vacuum Oil Company and was located at Churchgate. The initial design resembled the Art Deco-styled shell house at Ballard Estate, but the head office of Standard Vacuum in New York rejected the design. They wanted their buildings all over the world to reflect their global presence in the oil business. For their buildings in the tropics, they insisted on using architectural features that would reduce energy consumption, especially for air conditioning. The head office for the Indian operations was designed by Chauncey W. Riley, whose clientele consisted of many oil companies. He planned the building and designed the sun control system after plotting the sun's path and its effect on the different faces of the building. His study aimed to reduce, if not eliminate altogether, direct heat loads on the walls and window openings and thereby reduce air conditioning requirements. The final design provided a combination of vertical and horizontal louvers. The idea of sun shading devices is very old. Chhajjas were a part of every building in India from ancient times and were intended either to keep out rain or the hot afternoon sun. In course of time, the design of the chhajja became an important design element. Louvers are more recent. Antonin Raymond in the Golconde Hostel in Pondicherry used movable horizontal louvers. They shaded light and allowed sea breeze to flow through the rooms. Le Corbusier used fixed louvers to soften the bright tropical light. He called it Brise Soliel and integrated it in the design of his buildings. Shading devices could be used for a variety of reasons. Chauncey Riley's mandate was to reduce heat loads and he could design any shading device as long as the objective was met. The plans, elevations and details of the entrance were drawn by Riley and the structure was designed by Ritchie and Palfi, who were also the local architects. The construction was overseen by an engineer deputed by the company whose job it was to get the building detailed procure materials for construction and supervise actual work at site. He was assisted by a draftsman and site engineers. I was the draftsman who drew the details and saw them come up while still a student. I worked part-time until the building came to its finishing stages when I took some time off from school to see work on site. The plan provided for open offices with no fixed elements except stairs and lifts. All internal divisions were made using movable partitions made from wood studs and plywood. This was an inexpensive way of making partitions. Prior to this, partitions were made with wood styles and rails and infill panels, like joinery for doors. Generally, everyone except managers worked in one space and supervisory staff were segregated by low barriers. The layout of offices in an American company differed from their British counterparts. It was less hierarchical. 
What attracted us was the idea of louvers, which this building used as an important feature in its design, together with the concept of open offices, the quality of its construction, and the organized manner of its execution. The mode of construction was not unusual because it was quite common for owners to supply materials and hire labor contractors for constructing their buildings. But identifying sources, negotiating prices, and procuring and supplying materials to the site in time required a great deal of organizing. C. B. Plog, the engineer in charge of the project, could do this efficiently as he had the company to assist him. Supervision at site was specified in the code books. <coughs> Not all projects done this way were successful. Very often, there would be a mismatch between supply and work schedules. Where work had to be redone to rectify faulty workmanship, the loss would be the owners, since they would have to bear the cost of materials. Moreover, a project done without a general contractor requires a responsible engineer or a clerks of work on site, so that responsibility is fixed in case of failure. Stanwack House, or Petroleum House as it is now known, was among the early examples of modern architecture that came up in the fifties. When we were students, it was such a contrast to the Mercantile Bank, now HSBC Bank, Bank of India, and Industry House next to Stanwack House, all of which came up at more or less the same time. Stanwack House showed a way forward. Bombay had turned its back on the Art Deco phase, which was hectic and prolific in output. Surface embellish embellishments gave way to rational use of space. Honest use of materials and avoidance of ornament, the city was truly on the cusp of modernity and receptive to new ideas. And architects like me at that time were acutely aware of what was churning and what would come. <laughs>